Is it on? Good. Okay. All right. Well, we've been going through a summer series on the creeds. We believe, reaffirming our core beliefs through the ancient creeds. This morning, we are beginning to look at the last creed that we're going to be covering. We're going to look at the Athanasian Creed this week and next week. For those of you who um, like to know what's going to happen next so that you can prepare for that, uh, we're going to start a series through the book of Esther on August 21st, which I'm looking forward to very much. This morning, our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 through 14. So go ahead and turn there. I want to say as you're turning there that the Athanasian Creed is long, okay? If you pick one up, you're like, no, oh, this, is, this is pretty long. Um, that's half of it, okay? So it's, you don't even have the whole thing in front of you. Um, it's very long, and we're not going to be able to cover each and every line, but you will, you'll see as we get into it that the lines are teaching the same doctrine throughout the first half, and then also that's true of the second half as well. And the plan is to talk about the Trinity this week and then next week to talk about challenges to Trinitarian doctrine, looking at heresies and why we reject those heresies. And so if you're able, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning with verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is truth, and even as we approach today the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, Lord, help us to be humble. We realize, Lord, there is so much that we don't know and so much that we can't know because we are finite and you are infinite. And so just help us, I pray, through this time in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, I'm not going to read through the creed to start with today. Um, however, we're going to look at it later on in the sermon. But before we get to the creed itself, I want to give a little bit of background here. First is this, we don't actually know the origin of the Athanasian Creed. 
It was ascribed to him, to Athanasius, but it's likely that Athanasius had nothing to do with the creed. He never mentioned it in any of his writings, and it it very likely came after he was gone. And not just that, but it wasn't a creed. It wasn't written to be a creed. In its earliest references, it was called the faith of Athanasius. A saying that um, among creedal scholars is that there are only two things about the Athanasian creed that are certain. It is not Athanasian and it is not a creed. It is likely that the initial purpose of the Athanasian creed was to provide a template that clergy could use to master the central theological doctrines of the Christian faith. And it was originally meant to be studied and mastered, not recited liturgically. It was later on in the early 8th century that it grew in popularity and began to be added to uh, prayer books for liturgical use. By the middle of the 13th century, medieval writers were beginning to speak of three creeds. According to Martin Luther, the Athanasian Creed was the most important and glorious composition since the days of the apostles. John Calvin considered it one of the three symbols that stand forever in accordance with the Word of God. The Athanasian Creed consists of 42 articles or lines which can be divided into three parts. The first addresses the Trinity, the second defends the nature of Jesus, and the third consists of a set of condemnations that assert that any who will be saved must adhere to the teachings of the Creed. The reason that we are studying this Creed as a part of our summer series is because of its emphasis on the Trinity. It is thorough and it is incredibly helpful in our learning about the doctrine of the Trinity. We've looked over these last several weeks a good bit at the doctrine of Christ and His coming in the previous sermons from the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. And so we're going to be looking at the first 28 articles of the Athanasian Creed. As we get into it, let's notice something unique at the beginning of the Creed. The Nicene and Apostles' Creeds begin with, we believe or I believe. Notice how the Athanasian Creed begins. Whoever will be saved should by necessity hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who fails to keep this faith complete without change will doubtlessly perish for eternity. Now the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. That we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. In unity. We tend to think when we hear the word worship, singing. What we did, we did the worship part of our service. That's concluded until later on we get to worship again at the end when we sing again. But what the creed is saying here is this is the God that we worship. Worship is much more than singing. It's our acknowledgement of the worth of something or someone. It is our acknowledgement of the worth of God. God, you are worthy. Worthy of more than a song. 
worthy of everything. This is the God we worship. Now consider that as we think about the Trinity. In the sermon on uh, the Holy Spirit from the Nicene Creed on July 3rd, I quoted Louis Burkhoff. He wrote this, The Trinity is a mystery. Man cannot comprehend it and make it intelligible. It is intelligible in some of its relations and modes of manifestation, but unintelligible in its essential nature. The real difficulty lies in the relation in which the persons in the Godhead stand to the divine essence and to one another. And this is a difficulty which the church cannot remove, but only try to reduce to its proper proportion by a proper definition of terms. It has never tried to explain the mystery of the Trinity, but only sought to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity in such a manner that the errors which endangered it were warded off. Justin Holcomb writes this, it is, sometimes, it is sometimes said that you cannot describe the Trinity without committing some sort of heresy. Either you make God out to be three gods or you make the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit into a sham and pretense. The reason for this is that to speak about God, to speak about the Trinity is different from speaking about any other thing. God is categorically separate from all other subjects. God is God and nothing else is. So when we discuss the Trinity, we are peering into what theologians call the aseity of God. God presents Himself fully only to Himself. We know about the Trinity only because God lovingly reveals aspects of His being and character to us, but God knows Himself very well. Now again, that does not mean that we can't know true things about the Trinity. God graciously reveals Himself to us. But we hold the doctrine of the Trinity with humility, knowing that we can never fully understand, yet we can truly worship. So I want to highlight some traits that we see in the Athanasian Creed, traits of God that we haven't explored because they weren't highlighted in other creeds that we've looked at. Just a few things that should, again, lead us to worship. First, as it relates to the Trinity and what we just heard quoted from Louis Burkhoff as well as Justin Holcomb, it says that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are unfathomable. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are unfathomable. God is incomprehensible. That's what the creed is trying to communicate about the Trinity. That, again, it doesn't mean that He is unable to be known. We can know God. That is a glorious and hopeful truth. But only God can know God fully. God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see in the last verse of our text uh, this truth. In verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, and the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, a way that is consistent with the Scriptures and with the Athanasian Creed to think about the Trinity is through seven propositions. One, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And seven, there is only one God. God is unfathomable. If, if you hear the, the truths about the Trinity and it causes you to wonder, that's the point. That's all we can do. We can wonder and we can worship. Another trait that we see in the Athanasian Creed concerning the Trinity, and we consider that this is the one who we worship, says the persons of the Trinity are equal in glory and co-eternal in majesty. I would ask you, do you believe that? That the persons of the Trinity are equal in glory and co-eternal in majesty. So the Son is equal in glory with the Father. And the Son is equal in glory with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is equal in glory with the Father and with the Son. And the Father is equal in glory with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. And all are eternal in majesty. Now we saw in the other creeds where it highlights the Father Almighty. The Son is also almighty. And the Holy Spirit is Almighty, from and for all of eternity. The Athanasian Creed highlights that all three persons are almighty and all three eternal. This is the God that we worship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, equal in majesty. There is only one God. Look at 2 Corinthians for a bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That is why we have been doing this series. What is true faith? What is, what is right belief? The Athanasian Creed begins with a similar thought. Whoever will be saved should by necessity hold to the Catholic faith. And remember that word Catholic means universal. Universal faith. It's referring to the one church, that there is only one church. In other words, as it relates to this, there is not a faith that the Eastern Orthodox Church holds to for salvation, and, and altogether another faith that the Western Church 
holds to for salvation and not one that the Baptists believe for salvation and another specifically for the Anglican church and yet another for the Methodist church. There's one Catholic faith. And it's important that we understand that and that we believe. Paul says, examine yourself. Be certain that you believe what is true, what is right belief, what is orthodox. As we look at the creed, even the section that we won't be covering, it's important that we believe what is true about the Trinity. And what is true about the Son, His coming and conquering of sin, His atoning work on the cross, His resurrection and life everlasting. Examine yourselves. I hope so very much that that you've examined yourselves over these last weeks. And let me be clear, Paul's not saying here, and I'm certainly not saying here, that in examining ourselves, it's that you better know and understand fully the Trinity. You better understand and know fully all of the doctrines that 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 are taught throughout all of the... You better know them fully and understand fully. No, examine who you believe in. Who do you believe in? Examine where your faith is. Our desire and the goal of the creeds, especially the Nicene Creed and Apostles' Creed, is that we confess belief in God and in the persons of the Trinity as God. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Do you believe? Do you really believe the truths about God and who He is? Do you believe in Him? Whoever will be saved should by necessity hold to the Catholic faith. The creed continues. Now the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Now what does that mean? What is the Catholic faith as we consider the Trinity? If you picked it up, you can follow along. I'm going to read through what we have here in the first 28 articles of the Athanasian Creed. Whoever will be saved should by necessity hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who fails to keep this faith complete and without change will doubtlessly perish for eternity. Now the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity neither mixing the persons nor dividing their essence. For there is one person who is the Father, another person who is the Son, and another person who is the Holy Spirit. But the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all one, all equal in their glory, all co-eternal in their majesty. What is true of the being of the Father is true also of the Son and is true too of the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated, the Father is unfathomable, the Son is unfathomable, and the Holy Spirit is unfathomable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and the Holy Spirit is eternal, and yet they are not three eternal beings, but one eternal being. There are also not three unfathomable beings. 
nor three uncreated beings, but one uncreated and unfathomable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit is almighty. And yet there are not three almighty beings, but one almighty being. As such, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. However, there are not three gods, but one God. As such, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord. And yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. For this reason, we are compelled by Christian truth to confess that each person is in themselves both God and Lord. The Catholic faith will not then allow us to say that there are three gods or there are three lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but is begotten only of the Father. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten, but only proceeds from the Father and the Son. As such, there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, no one is before no one is after another. No one is greater or inferior to another. In their fullness, the three persons are all co-eternal and co-equal with each other, so that in everything that has been said, we must worship their unity and trinity and their trinity and unity. Anyone, therefore, who wishes to be saved must think so about the trinity. This is orthodoxy. This is right belief. Now, do you fully understand the Trinity now that we've read through that? I don't, but I'm in awe, and I desire to worship God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. God knows God fully and graciously reveals Himself to us. It's grace. I want to address something that we should consider as we think about the Trinity, something that's highlighted in the Athanasian Creed. There's a position referred to as the eternal functional subordination of the Son. It teaches that the Son is necessarily subordinate to the Father for all eternity. It comes from a belief that since the Son submitted to the Father in His earthly ministry, He therefore submitted to and was subordinate to the Father for all eternity because His coming is a display of that eternal relationship. Now, this, this teaching has been used as one of the pillars for complementarian teaching. A complementarianism, if you're not familiar with it, it's something that we hold to as a church. It teaches that God specifically and purposefully created man and woman with distinct and complementary roles. They, they were created to complement one another. And I want to confess here, I have spoken... From, from the pulpit and in counseling in the past about the son as an example of why women are to submit to their husbands in this way. And I was wrong. As I've studied more and as, as I've studied the Bible more, it's wrong. 
The Son is not subordinate to the Father for all of eternity. Eternal functional subordination is something that was rejected by early church fathers, by the creeds themselves. It is not right belief. And in this trinity, it says, no one is before, no one is after another, no one is greater or inferior to another. In their fullness, the three persons are all co-eternal and co-equal with each other. One commentator writes this, during the incarnation, Jesus also submitted to the Holy Spirit. And yet, after his exaltation, it appears that Jesus is in charge of dispensing the Spirit. So, so we, have to, we have to learn from the context of all of the Scriptures that there's a degree of mutuality in the relationship of the Trinity. Not everything true of the relationship of the Father and Son in eternity is also true of the Father-Son relation expressed in the incarnation and Jesus' short 30-year reign on this earth. And I want to spend the remainder of our time looking at verses 11 through 13 as we consider the greatness of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. As we consider the greatness of their might, I want to look at verses 11 through 13. It says this, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Now, what is this and how does it relate to the Athanasian Creed? How does, how does this relate even to the statement, anyone therefore who wishes to be saved must think so about the Trinity? I believe this is the result of creedal con confession and true orthodoxy, of right belief. The creeds are not meant to produce robotic recitation of mundane motives. They're meant to help us know God as He is. And true knowing of God results in reflection. Not the inward reflection where one reflects on his or herself and looks out at the ocean and says, who am I? Reflection like a mirror. We reflect the God that we believe. And so, if, if our God is self, then we will reflect selfishness. But if our God is God in Trinity, in Trinity in unity, full of love and peace in themselves perfectly, a God who is omnibenevolent, then we will reflect those things. And so, as we are rounding the corner to end this series next Sunday, let's consider how is our right belief being reflected to other people? What are other people seeing that right belief looks like, and feels like, and sounds like?
Is it rejoicing? Is it aiming for restoration? Is it comforting one another? Is it agreeing with one another? Just like we looked at last week in Acts chapter 2, that they had all things in common. Is it living in peace? Is it knowing that the God of love and peace is with us? I was at the BMV this week, which is always a great story to end the sermon with. I saw something so simple, but it was beautiful as it relates to this. There was a young lady, probably 16 years old, who was taking her driver's test, and she flunked. She never got it out of park, and she flunked. I don't know specifically what it was, but she couldn't find something on the car. You have to go through all the things, honk the horn, signals. Those, there was something she could not find. And so they come back in from the start. And it wasn't a car that she was familiar with, obviously. Well, another mom was there because her son was taking the test without driving at the time. And she offered her 2022 vehicle that was the same model as the car that this young lady had at home that was another family member's. They didn't know each other. In fact, the mom of the, the girl came in and explained to the BMV worker that a lady offered to her to use her vehicle. Would that be okay? And so, reluctantly, the BMV worker allowed it while she rolled her eyes. And so, the son of this 2022 owner of vehicle comes back, and he's happy he passed, and they hand the keys off to this stranger, and she goes out, and I'm waiting. Like, I'm anxious. Like, she going to demolish this car? Like, she didn't know how to honk the horn. Like, how is this going to work out? She comes back, and she passed. It was beautiful. As I thought of that, I just thought, what a beautiful picture of, that's selflessness right there. It's kindness. It's generosity. And it's a kind of thing that Paul commends to us, a reflection of right belief. I don't know why the lady did it. I have no idea why she saw what was happening and just said, hey, I've got a vehicle that you're welcome to use if you'd like to. I don't know why she did it. But I know what it looked like. It was beautiful. It was grace. It was kindness, generosity. We're moving into a time where we're taking the Lord's Supper together. And the greatest example of that, of generosity, we have seen in Christ. We've seen in God the Father generously giving His Son to us. We've seen in Jesus generously laying down His life for our sins, being punished for our sins. And it's what we remember and rehearse every single time we take the bread and we take the cup. We try to be very clear here that this is a time that's specifically meant for those who have trusted in Christ. That as we, as we together, as Paul says, as we're together proclaiming the Lord's death, that that's, that's something that, that those who don't believe in Christ wouldn't even want to do. And so we want to remind people again and again that this is 
what the scriptures tell us is, is specifically for those who are in Christ and, and that those who don't yet know the Lord, we encourage you to consider the Lord and partake of the Lord in that time. But in saying that, most of the weeks that we do this, I don't at all want to give the perception that as we, as we come to the table with the Lord, that you're uninvited that there's never a space at the table for you. There is a place for you if you come to Christ. You are invited to come. You are welcome to the table in Christ. So consider Christ this morning if you don't know Him. If you do as we come and we receive the bread and the cup and we go back to our seats and prepare our hearts, let's Let's consider what we're reflecting of right belief. What does right belief look like to our neighbor? What's right belief look like to our kids? What's right belief look like to our coworkers, to those we go to school with? And, and whatever category we can think, what does right belief look like to them? What would they describe right belief as if you were their example, if I was their example? pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're so gracious to us, Lord. We consider the truths of who you are. and We confess, as the creed does, Lord, you're unfathomable. It's impossible for us to fully understand. And Lord, just want to acknowledge that that is a good thing. You're so far above us, high and exalted, set apart in all of your ways, worthy of our worship. So help us to worship you even now as we take the bread and we take the cup and as we sing to you in this time. We want you to be honored and we want you to be glorified in it. So help us, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.